episode 23 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're talking the evolution of policing. What are we taking from training into the streets? And what does the future of policing look like? Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, this is Tactical Breakdown, the podcast. If you are in law enforcement, emergency response, or the military, and you are an instructor or trainer, you're looking to step your game up, you're looking to bridge that gap and get information from around the world, you're in the right place. If this is your first time, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you're a returning listener, again, thank you for your support. I wouldn't be doing this without you, so thank you as well. If you haven't already make sure to subscribe to the podcast now before we jump into our episode today with jason i want to tell you about a few little things that we got going on right now we just started our tactical hero giveaway we've partnered with la police gear and blower tactical systems to put together a giveaway that's worth over 400 bucks and we're doing this month in and month out we're going to be putting together these gear packages if you are an active or veteran member of the law enforcement, first responder, corrections, or military communities, you are eligible to enter those draws. You can check that out at thebreakdown.ca forward slash contest. On January 30th, 2020, make sure to set your calendars, set a reminder on your phone for 1800 central time. We are going to be rolling out the very first instructors roundtable. The Instructors' Roundtable is a live panel discussion with some of the best subject matter experts in the world, and the first one we have coming out is going to be all about use of force and defensive tactics training. We've wrangled in four of the top instructors. We have John Bostain, Chris Butler, Scott Savage, and Tony Blauer. We're going to be putting this out there live for you to view on the website at thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT or on our YouTube or Facebook pages. You can jump on to those live feeds. You can ask questions on the chat right to the instructors. If you've never had a chance to talk to these guys before or ask them questions, now's your chance. So make sure to jump on that live 1800 central. That's going to be 1700 if you're on the West Coast, 1900 if you're on the East Coast and some random time of the day if you're anywhere else in the world. Don't worry if you can't make it at that time. Everything is going to be recorded. It'll be put out on YouTube, and we're going to have an audio-only version on this podcast as well. Now, on today's show, we are talking about the evolution of policing, what it's like to take training and move it into the field. It started with a small conversation and a question, should there be a service time requirement on specialized positions in law enforcement? On today's show, I have Jason Civitano. Jason is an amazing instructor. He has over 23 years of law enforcement experience. He's a SWAT member, a force science specialist. Jason has a company called Complete Tactile Consultants. It is on the cutting edge of training for law enforcement. If you haven't already, make sure to check them out. The link to their website is right on the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 023. But let's jump into this episode with Jason and talk about the evolution of policing. Here we go.
All right, Jason, I finally got you on the line, my man. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, my friend. Thanks very much, Adam. Glad to be here. So we've been talking a little bit back and forth offline about what the topic of this conversation was going to be. And I think we settled in on evolution in policing and not only on the training side, but also what it looks like in the field. So you have a vast amount of experience and knowledge when it comes to policing. Uh, You've been doing it for over 20 years. When we talk about evolution in policing and we talk about how that affects both officers in the field and in a training environment, which I know is your specialty, that generational gap that we're seeing, what, where are you finding um, the most challenges right now for what you're doing with your training in your department? So I, there's some very particular things that I've seen, especially over the last 10 years. Uh, I've been in law enforcement now, you said, uh, coming up on my 24th year, and I've been fortunate enough to be involved in training for about 20 years through various topics, uh, many of those associated with the use of force. The changes that I've seen developing between, say, my generation, the 20-year veteran officer, the 10-year veteran officer, and now the newer officers coming on is the evolution of technology. And what I mean by that is when I was growing up, uh, you wanted to be outside of the house uh, because if you were inside the house, that generally meant you're going to be doing chores. So we were out in the neighborhoods, we were playing sports, whatever sporting event was up for that type of time of year. Uh, You're playing with all the neighborhood kids uh, in the park at the baseball field, and you're out being active. And many of those times, you know, kids are competitive in those situations. And so these rivalries get going and all of a sudden what happens? Something goes wrong and a little fisticuffs breaks out. Many times it was with your best friend. And then an hour later, you're moving on and everybody's playing again like nothing ever happened. What I'm seeing now is that uh, some of the younger people coming in have spent a lot of their time focused more in the technological realm of uh being a kid, you know, growing up with computers and iPads and cell phones. Uh, No iPads existed when I was a kid. I think my first cell phone, I was 25 years old and already in law enforcement for a couple of years. So there isn't as much exposure outside. And, uh, you know, as I was telling you when we were offline in my training over the years, what I've seen in asking newer officers is, you know, how many people have one, been involved in an actual fight? And then two, how many people have been punched in the face? Shockingly, uh, there is a very large percentage of younger people who, one, have never been in a fight and certainly haven't been punched in the face. Now, I'm not promoting fighting as a kid or anything, but that was just some of the, the realities uh, when we were growing up and As I said earlier, you know, oftentimes you made up and just went about your day. So from a training perspective where that has caused me and other uh, trainers some concern is how do we expose 
newer, younger officers who don't have uh, a background uh, or who haven't been hit or punched uh, and don't know what it feels like or how your body's going to react. How do we get them to understand the reality of a fight, what your body does in those situations, and to be able to react and defend themselves or someone else in these situations without shutting down from this first-time exposure in a real-life event. And I think that we can do ourselves and our agencies and these younger officers a tremendous disservice not to have some sort of exposure to uh, a performance-based, human-based training to see what individually you're going to do under stress in a real fight. It's interesting. As soon as you said that, I, for some reason, my brain always goes back to that. uh, I think it was uh, Mike Tyson who says, everybody's got a plan until you get hit. And that's kind of exactly what you're, what you're touching on there. It's when you're training people, especially when we're talking about like a use of force or a DT program, it's like, we can talk about what it's like. We can explain the physiological response that happens in your body when you're in these situations but until you've actually experienced it, you're kind of, you're in the dark. Like you don't know, you, you're not going to know until it actually happens and you can train it to a point, but you can't, you can't straight up like open fist, just pop somebody in the face and be like, okay, now we know, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't think that shit's going to fly. Um, where, where do you think is a good place to try to get to? when we're talking about that type of training where do you think that there's a certain level of actual physical violence that should be taking place in training to, I don't know what the best term would be to, but to basically get these officers ready for what their the reality is of what they're going to face in the field. Without a doubt. I do. And, and I'll qualify uh, my response there. Every agency has, Uh, concerns when it comes to training. Number one is generally budgetary. Second would be staffing levels and the amount of time they can free officers up to participate in training. And then when you look at this type of training, when you're going to expose people, whether it's, uh, you know, a one minute boxing match, whether it's some ground grappling, uh, fighting in somebody in a red man suit and so forth, the other th- concern for administrators is, am, are my officers going to get hurt in these situations? So without uh, you know, going overboard, and I've had the opportunity as a trainer to actually, I'll give you a couple of examples. In uh, one of my former agencies, um, we actually had had this conversation with our chief and told him, here's our thought. We're going to, we had a very nice facility. We had a mat room uh, down in the basement of the police department uh, with uh, speed bags and heavy bags. And we went through a lot of training in technique. And so one year we, we said, what we're going to do is we're going to have somebody in the red man suit with boxing gloves. And we're going to put boxing gloves on the officers. And everybody's going to go through a 30 second to one minute fight. And I'll never forget the look on his face uh, initially was like, um, 
okay. And then when it gets out of control or somebody gets hurt, and we said, listen, is there a chance there is? Will somebody um, maybe be sore or get a black eye? There's a chance, but we're not going to have a full-on pin somebody down, throwing elbows. We want to inoculate them to being exposed to this fight and just see how the officer performs. We will control it. We'll have two or three instructors that are in there. We will have uh, safety words. We will be able to to separate people and be involved directly in the training. And if we see something that isn't going right, we will take immediate action. So we had some discussion back and forth and the chief approved it. And so we put everybody through this training and the feedback was this. There was, of course, there were a lot of people who were uh, very nervous to say the least when this started. And surprisingly, the feedback and the performance was very good. And we had people tell us, you know, this is probably the first, well, this is the first time I've ever been um, in a fight like this and punched in the face. And now I know I can work through it. I know I can survive. And I, I know I'm not going to go to the ground unless, of course, you know, you catch one right in the, the, the money spot on the chin. And that is what it is. Um, but it gave them some self-confidence to perform in the field. Uh, we do the same thing with the ground game. You know, since the, the UFC has become so popular uh, in mixed martial arts, you, we see people throughout the country in all of these schools well, the last place I want to learn or have to react is in a fight on the street when I see somebody and, and let's say they take me to the ground. I have uh, some experience in boxing, in jiu-jitsu, in mixed martial arts. Uh, I wouldn't say that I am uh, exceptionally proficient um, or, or have very high ranks in any of them, but I have exposure in, in continued training in all of them. So at least I can recognize on some either pre-assault indicators or in a fight, okay, this person obviously knows something. You know, those little indicators, the guy you're facing and he has the cauliflower ears and right away, you know, yeah, I'm not going to the ground because this isn't going to work out in my favor. <laughs> so I think we have to have those, those training elements and make sure that we're giving our officers the best possible um, outcome in a, a, a force-on-force encounter on the street. You know, it's it's interesting because you always hear that argument on where should this training be occurring? Should it be put on and everything's run through the agency? Or should the officer be seeking out training on their own to become proficient in the skills that they're going to need even if it means that they're kind of spending their own time and their own money on it. And from everyone I've spoken to, I mean, we have it. I think the culture is changing. I think we have some amazing, amazing instructors and leaders on the training side in agencies across North America that are really pushing and progressing what it means to, to have these, these training programs where we're starting to, to break apart, the the block and silo type training and starting to to bring the training together with whether it be firearms and defensive tactics or conflict 
de-escalation or whatever it is. We're starting to to incorporate one and one and another, and you're getting these more dynamic training modules. But when we're talking about, like you said before, time and money, agencies don't have the time to to send people to these to these courses where you have an instructor that can spend weeks with somebody to get them proficient in all these skills that we're speaking of. So, so where's the, where's that happy medium? When you get into policing, do these new officers have to be like, okay, part of my requirement for this job so that I know that I stay safe is going to be doing some training on my own time. Like, where does that happen? So you've just opened up Pandora's box. I love this question. Do that every. Okay. (laughs) Here's a couple of thoughts. First, Should officers just be focusing in agencies on training internally? No, 100% no. For the reasons we've discussed, manpower, time, uh, staffing levels, that's just not going to provide enough training for any officer at any level. So I am the huge proponent of officers seeking out training on their own. Does it cost money? It does. Uh, But here's the way I've always looked at it. For this little amount of money that I'm spending every month, uh, let's say it's a hundred bucks a month for uh, a jujitsu gym, uh, a mixed martial arts gym, a boxing gym. Let's just say a hundred dollars. The way I view it is that hundred dollars could save my life down the road. Plain and simple. It's going to do a couple of things. It's going to give me some training to be able to respond to a sudden violent encounter with a suspect. Secondarily, it's going to get me in shape and keep me in good physical shape, hopefully. Third, I'm going to be exposed to people of different builds, sizes, skill levels, speed. And all of these things directly apply to the police officer, sheriff's deputy, uh, law enforcement agent's job on the street. You don't know who you're going to encounter when. And you cannot account for a particular type of person or anything else. And I know this 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 may sound um, obvious, but I don't know with, with all officers that it is an obvious answer. Then when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, integrating uh, all of our training, force training components. Without question, this has to happen. Where, and here's where I've seen some of the breakdown throughout the years. Firearms teaches a certain discipline, obviously firearms, but they also teach um, encounters when a person is attacking you. And so uh, you're going to bring your gun, you know, you obviously we don't want to punch out and introduce the gun as a 50-50 uh, struggle for it in, in a confrontation. But maybe with our support hand, we're delivering strikes or we're creating a frame. And what I've seen is things are being taught differently by range staff, maybe who don't have a background in uh, the defensive tactics or um, skills of that set. And then the People, uh, the instructors in the tactics portion are teaching another skill in integrating all of these different force modalities and getting the instructors to work together. We can be uh, putting together a, a consistent training plan that 
gives more reps of good techniques at various uh, different training vent, uh, um, uh, training modalities so that uh, we're, we're reinforcing good behaviors. We're getting them more reps um, in, in, in these attacks. And in doing so, I think we create a, a better training environment and we're preparing our officers with some skills that they're going to use in a sudden encounter and they're going to be able to use them because they've gone through the techniques. They've trained the techniques. Uh, I think we, we, we know that, and it's been proven, that if you don't have a basis for uh, any techniques, you have little to no prior training and you haven't wrecked something out, that under stress, your brain is not going to all of a sudden say, okay, well, in this encounter, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deliver a, a palm heel strike with our support hand, or I'm in really close. So I'm going to uh, deliver an elbow uh, to the side of the head with my support hand as I try and and either draw a gun or transition to um, a baton or a taser, OC, whatever the officer decides to go to. That's just not going to happen. And in fact, uh, what we've also uh, learned through uh, science and, and human-based training and how the, the brain works is that many times these, if without exposure, the officer could shut down. Their brain could freeze. And in putting people in those situations, again, uh, we're setting our officers up for failure. Uh, so from a, an administrator level, and I, let me say I've never been an administrator. I've always been uh, a working uh, street cop, uh, detective. Uh, so I, I've never been an administrator, but I've, I interact with, with administrators regularly from the training perspective. And in my opinion, having those good conversations, that, that uh, ability to sit down and talk with uh, captains, commanders, and chiefs about why we need to do something and being able to support your training objectives based on science, based on how people work and the brain works, then if we present those facts to commanders, uh, in my experience at least, it has enabled us to provide uh, some more effective training and to bring these, these training groups together to deliver a solid product, uh, regardless of the discipline. I want to throw a question at you, and I think this kind of goes in the face of what most people talk about when we talk about developing and changing training programs. Do you think that there would be an, a more immediate result in the effectiveness of training? If instead of focusing on training the student, we focused on cross-training the instructor? Unquestionably. It's, it's a multi, and that, that's a fantastic point, Adam. It's a, a multi-leveled um, approach to creating a, a, a more structured and a, a more productive training environment. Um, what, some of the other things I've seen, I've worked with some instructors who are just absolutely incredible. I mean, just phenomenal at their, their uh, abilities in the techniques they're teaching. And I will say this also, 
the reason they are that way is because they have sought training outside of what's provided just by their agency. They've grown up. Um, let's let's take a, a couple of good of my real good friends. They've grown up wrestling. They've grown up uh, in martial arts, boxing, um, doing various things as well as the firearms components because they're all they're cross designated as I am to do uh, multiple uh, uh, force techniques, uh, instruct instructing in those, but. We as instructors have to evolve with the times as much as, if not more than, the students were teaching. Um, what I have seen over the years are some instructors who, uh, and, and this happens, and, and it's a product of, of you know, the profession. We, we work long shifts, varying schedules, throw in court, family life, kids, uh, taking care of the house, mowing the lawns. So like everybody in life, uh, our time is stretched thin. However, the guys that, that, and gals who train outside of just what the department provides, or I went to this school and this school and this school, and each was a week or two weeks. And now I'm the lead instructor, or I'm one of the primary instructors for my department. If the training stops, so does the growth. And as We've seen, and we talked about this a little earlier, with the um, the popularity of mixed martial arts. For those 15 years ago who haven't sought any new training that takes in all of these different uh, fighting techniques, you know, from stand-up to grappling and so forth, you're behind the times now, significantly behind. So... It's got to be to be more professional, to provide better training, more professional training. The other thing I think that is imperative for today's tactics instructors, regardless of discipline, you need to get some human factors training. You need to either read more. You need to get your department to send you to trainings, and they're all over the world. Uh, there are a lot of people teaching them. I've gone through uh, the Force Science Institute uh, and in, in I, I was able last year to get my advanced specialist through them based on human factors. Uh, if the more I got from going through these trainings over the years, we have used it in, in the, the department to actually frame our training each, each year for the department. And other officers in my department have also done the same thing. And what we've noticed collaboratively is that uh, our training has become uh, more reality-based, if you will. And uh, it, it forces the officers to do things uh, that they're going to see on the street. And there are limitations to that. But in our opinion, what we've seen is uh, our training has really uh, gone up to another level and the feedback we've gotten from officers has reinforced those beliefs. It's interesting when we talk about the officer and we talk about what type of role they're going to be fulfilling in the department. And I know a lot of the times the question comes down to, or even from the individual officers can be, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not on SWAT. I'm not on a, um, a warrant unit. I'm not on in drugs and gangs. Like I don't have to worry about like I'm doing a, I have a desk job. 
Like, why do I have to go through all of this physical training when that's not part of my job anymore? What do you say to those guys? Bluntly ridiculous. <laughs> Here's why. So uh, I, I just uh, retired from SWAT in August and uh, I was a SWAT team member, SWAT team leader. And here's what I know about SWAT. We are called out after the initial confrontation has taken place and it's escalated to a point that the supervisors and commanders on scene have determined uh, this particular call out uh, is more dangerous or exceeds the current capability and the current equipment that we have to uh, address this this situation. And so we're going to utilize SWAT uh, to come in and help us solve this problem. In reality, your, your, your line police officer deals with far more than SWAT ever will. Point blank. They're the ones getting in the fights. They're the ones who are the first responders going to a call and they have many of the people at the call at a high point in their, um, their emotional instability. Uh, correctional officers dealing with um, an inmate fight or an inmate in a mental health crisis inside of a cell and having to, or, or out on the yard, and having to address it right now before uh, the CERT team can be activated. Uh, let's take New Jersey. The detective who was just recently following up uh, on a homicide that occurred and what happens. Within a minute, he's in a lethal encounter and is killed in the line of duty. I don't care where you are in the realm of, of your law enforcement career or what your specialty is, whether it's investigations, corrections, patrol, detectives. We cannot take that, that complacent view and say, well, I'm not really doing this all the time, so it's not going to affect me. You know, I, I equate that with, with the, uh, the adage of, well, this is the way we've always done it. I think that is a recipe for immediate failure. We want to, we talk about law enforcement being a profession. Corrections, it's a profession. Well, then we need to, like private enterprise, develop as professionals. We need to develop with the times. And when we see things changing, we have to look at those. What's happening on the street right now? Look throughout the country at the number of encounters that we have both in um, correctional facilities and on the street that are in a mental health crisis. Most officers don't have a whole lot of training in dealing with people in mental health crises. Now, there is training more and more coming out uh, in North America because we confront these situations so often, but um, we, we don't have you know, a, a full capability of, or full understanding on what's the best way to address this individual. So the training is coming out and thankfully we're evolving with that. The other problem that I see when it comes to, let's just stay on the mental health encounters, is that the general public outside of law enforcement seems to think our job is to go in and uh, 
determine what kind of mental health crisis this individual is under and what's the best way to, um, without using any force whatsoever, get this person to calm down, get them whatever the uh, treatment or medication they may need and solve the situation. The reality is this, uh, law enforcement professionals are not psychologists or psychiatrists. Psycho you know, I, I deal with uh, and, and have met and had the, uh, the opportunity uh, to go through some discussions with uh, a professional psych psychologist here in uh, Nebraska. His name's Dr. Jack Stark. Dr. Stark was the um, team psychologist for the Nebraska Corn Huster Huskers back in their heyday when they were winning national titles. He um, goes through mental health preparation with uh, professional athletes, including Hendricks Motorsports, some MMA fighters, professional basketball players. And in these conversations, he was explaining how it takes the mental health professional several hour-long meetings to correctly diagnose a person in a, in a mental health crisis, figure out exactly what type of crises they're experiencing and maybe what the what type of mental health um, uh, condition they're experiencing, and then they start the treatment process. Law enforcement has minutes to do this and to try and resolve the situation. And oftentimes uh, they spin out of control very quickly. And that's what goes into the use of force. And the correlation here is if officers don't have a background in these use of force situations and being able to adapt quickly and react to what's happening, then do these spin out of control uh, with maybe more so than they should. I don't know the definitive answer to that, but it all goes back to the baseline of training in all of these modalities. You touched on a lot of things in there. So I want to I want to pick out a few of them because they're really interesting to me. One the last thing you said there about officers responding um, and we talk about tactical communication and orientation being part of your use of force continuum at all times, being aware of your surroundings, using the OODA loop to to make sure that you're you're always you understand what's happening in the situation as it unfolds. When we talk about that, though, it's interesting to me because, uh, for example, when I've ever trained or talked to somebody who's responding to, say, um, an intoxicated person, right, whether it be a disturbance or just to call out, hey, we have a, a guy who's way too drunk or whatever. Okay, well, when we talk to these officers or and, and mostly now for me, I deal with private security, which is a whole nother realm, especially when it comes to what you're allowed to do from their standpoint legally. When they get called out to these these incidents and I say, OK, what's the first thing that you're going to do? Right. And they're like, well, we you know, whether it's like we'll remove them from the property or, you know, we'll take them to cells or whatever. And I said, OK, where's your have you even thought of the fact that this may be a medical emergency, not somebody who's drunk? They're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, let's talk about let's talk about a scenario like maybe say someone's diabetic, right? Maybe they're hypoglycemic, and now they're because their blood sugar is tanked out that they're they're exhibiting 
a lot of the same behaviors and signs of somebody who's intoxicated, but in in reality, they're going through a mental health or uh, not a mental health crisis, but a physical crisis that could result in them going into a coma and dying. But you're automatically assuming that because there you show up and the bystander or the witness said, oh, that person's drunk, that you take that at face value. Um, Same consideration can be made based off of your point is that when officers are showing up to calls, you're you should almost be going in there assuming that mental health could be a factor in almost every call that you um, you attend until proven otherwise. So I think that's a really interesting uh, point. But I just wanted to to bring that up and get your thoughts on that as well. <laughs> I'm not I'm not laughing at the uh, what you're discussing, but you bring up another uh, expertise I have. I've been a type one diabetic now for 40, 45 years. So I know exactly <laughs> what a diabetic is like. And yes, they will exhibit the same type of objective symptoms that somebody who has been drinking when the diabetic is in a hypoglycemic state. And in fact, um, some of the odors that a, a diabetic gives off can smell like alcohol, but it's really the um, amount of sugar in the system that that has this aroma almost of, of being under the influence of alcohol. So it's another level of complexity into the first responder addressing uh, a call for service. What could this encompass? Um, and it, it, it just complicates it even further. And I, I think right now what I want to point out, and I, I know that many of your listeners are in the law enforcement uh, arena. However, for those who, who aren't, you have to remember that officers have seconds to minutes to quickly make observations, and try and assess what is taking place based on information provided in the call, as well as what they're seeing, hearing, smelling, uh, using their senses upon arrival at the scene. And you're trying to make rapid situations, or, or I'm sorry, rapid decisions to solve some sort of crisis. Um, and again, not only could it be a mental health issue, could it be uh, under the influence of alcohol and or drugs, it could be a medical condition that we're actually dealing with on scene. Now, the way this complicates things is if there's nobody who may know the individual uh, who's having the crisis, maybe they don't know uh, that he or she is a diabetic. So, and I will tell you this, uh, as, a, as a young kid, when I would have um, some hypoglycemic, uh, they call them insulin reactions, which really it's just a low blood sugar, um, I would become like combative with my parents uh, as a kid. And so those, those things happen and, uh, you know, it, it, it brings a level. In fact, if you look in the United States, as the law of the land here is often what it's referred to for officer use of force, Graham versus Connor, that case is based on a person in a diabetic hypoglycemic crisis. The officer made some observations that look like perhaps a theft or a robbery had just taken place. They end up stopping uh, uh, him. He's the passenger in the car, Graham is. 
and they use force to control him because of his abnormal behavior. And then the uh, he sues the police department for excessive force. And in the end, the Supreme Court found that based on the objectives, signs, and symptoms that the officer observed from the initial uh, when, when he went into the store until the traffic stop took place and then Graham's behavior, that uh, his use of force was reasonable given the information that he had at the time. This is, was a landmark case for the United States in officer use of force. So when we're talking about all of these uh, various crises that could take place, uh, officers need to be prepared to really uh, uh, stay focused and try and determine what's happening to the best of their ability. Then if it escalates into a use of force situation, what force is necessary to gain control? And once control is gained to cease any force that's used. So again, we, we've entered another arena of, of so many uh, factors that add up to use of force, but it also goes back to, as we've discussed throughout our conversation, training. Training in mental health uh, context that officers have. Training in basic use of force, defensive tactics, techniques. Training in uh, firearms uh, usage and techniques and, and all of the laws that pertain to those. So yeah, this, this is a, another realm of the, the law enforcement profession. And again, it's across any discipline in law enforcement where we can be confronted with these situations. I think there's a lot of really good information that's starting to come out or has been coming out over the last couple of years about dealing with persons um, in mental health crises. I had an amazing conversation uh, with Leslie Hadfield out of Eastern Canada. Um, it was episode seven of the podcast. And we talked about that. We talked about dealing with uh, persons with disabilities, um, mainly autism, and dealing with people in mental crisis and, and what officers should be looking at before making a determination that, hey, listen, I need to go hands-on right now, or is it maybe going hands-on going to escalate the situation because the person has will react in a negative way because of their mental health issue. So that's a really interesting point. One of the other things that you had brought up and with the training is something that I always found really interesting is in the evolution of training were and in, in the in the case that you described when we're talking about use of force, it comes down to training now the officer on articulation and explaining the why of their actions, not just what they did, not just, well, I pulled up and uh, this person was doing this. So I did this and that was the result. It's okay. I, yeah, we get that. That's what happened. And now because of body cams and CCTV and cell phones, pretty much everything is recorded. Now it's, we have to start getting people to explain the why, why did you do this? What were you what were you feeling? What were you seeing? Like you said, what what are your senses telling you? And all of that is important and has to be articulated by that officer to help them explain the use of force that they used. And it's all these things that are happening in microseconds. And, and now you're trying to get the officer to go back and, and try to 
explain their actions. That's it's something super difficult, especially when we're talking about how do you train somebody to do that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Great, great um, topic to talk about. So uh, as I told you, I, I have the good fortune to be able to teach uh, various disciplines. And every single year, one of the first things I do with, with the officers that I've uh, had the good fortune to train, uh, train and train with is talk about policy and law. And then I focus on use of force report writing. And I hit this very hard every year. When I first started in the profession years, you know, more than 20 years ago, um, we were using these very generalized statements. Subject was combative. Subject was resistive. Well, down the road, when you're on the stand, say, say this, the, the, the uh, subject was arrested for, um, you know, resisting arrest and obstructing. And so they, they get arrested and then you're in court. And the officer now is testifying on the stand and is trying to remember all of the things that took place. And their report, as you said, says, you know, suspect resisted and I did this. What is that really saying? There is no detail. There's no factual information in that report. And I'll, I'll, I'll qualify this. What we've done is we've listed um, in our training, and there are handouts on it that you can find online for use of force, uh, report writing. What the officers have to, have to explain is, number one, what type of call were they dispatched to? What was the information they knew at the time? Often, in um, route to calls, there will be updates uh, on changes that are taking place on scene. You may talk to other officers that have dealt with uh, this particular person on other calls before who will provide you information while you're in route. Uh, maybe there's pass along information between shifts of dealings with this same individual. So all of these things go into what an officer knows at the time they arrive on scene. From that point, you have to break down the scene and describe what took place. For example, you know, um, I'll use myself as the suspect. Uh, once I arrived on scene, Civitano was uh, clinching his fists, uh, pacing back and forth. And uh, I told him to stop and attempted to talk to Civitano on several occasions. Um, he would not respond to me. He kept clinching his fists. Um, he was pacing back and forth and was completely ignoring any of the directives uh, that, that I was giving. So we're, we're setting up here the basis for the potential use of force and why the force needs to be used. Then let's say this, this confrontation takes place and um, that it goes on for two minutes. Many of the listeners who, who are, are instructors or who train a lot will, as, as well as you, you know that two minutes can seem like a lifetime in a, in a real fight. And then you complicate it even further for officers in wearing a bullet-resistant vest, their belts and all their gear, being in you know some more restrictive clothing, maybe you have boots on. So your ability to move is not like uh, a street fight, you know, or being in, in your, your 
training discipline where you're in shorts or something like that. So with the, with all this gear on, maybe you run out of gas a lot quicker. Uh, so it becomes more difficult to breathe. It, um, you're getting punched in the face. You're, you're, you feel dazed. Um, all of these things. And what I've seen throughout the years is that information was often missing from the officer's reports. And then if you try and throw this in on the stand, at least here in, in the U.S., what happens is the defense attorneys are going to say, well, officer, um, are you trained to write reports? Yes, I am. Are you trained to put all these details in reports? I am. So you put that he was resistive. How how are you recalling all of this information now? You're just making it so that the jury believes that all this happened, right? So essentially saying none of this really happened. Well, if you start to paint this picture, and that's how I tell people to write reports, they don't have to be pages and pages long, but you can paint a pretty vivid picture so that a reader who was not on scene can actually get something in their mind and understand what was taking place. Um, same goes for I deliver strikes, uh, which which I've had to do. Well, I struck, you know, Civitano four times, you know, in the head uh, to gain compliance, was able to um, gain control of his arms. And my partner and I put him in handcuffs and, and he was arrested and then transported, uh, maybe sought medical attention. Well, there's you can't hide the these this information, and maybe you're not hiding it. You just haven't thought about the detail that needs to go into uh, the reports. Now let's take it a step further. You brought up body cams, car cams. Now you know many houses have uh, the ring doorbell or some some type of thing like that. Exterior cameras on a house or a business, and then obviously cell phone cameras. And we use this in training as well. And, and I've, I've had to explain it not only to um, prosecutors, uh, some defense attorneys, but certainly to command staff in the internal affairs uh, process when they're reviewing these use of force cases, is that a camera is a nice piece of evidence, but it's just that. It's a piece of evidence. It is not what happened. And here's why. Cameras record at frames per second. So let's say it's 30 frames per second. Well, what the camera does is it decides in each frame what is important. And based on the uh, processing speed of your camera um, and so forth, then there may be things that take place that are not in what eventually becomes the video. And what a lot of the public doesn't understand what a video is, is it's hundreds, if not thousands of frames in a row. So each individual photograph, and then those are put together to create a video. So there could be things that are missing. Uh, for example, um, uh, a twitch that, that came from the suspect, uh, a glint of a knife that could be missed, uh, and things like this. The other thing is, um, Body cameras and car cameras, many of them have a fisheye style lens. So what it does is it records a wide, very wide uh, picture. But what we know about the human body under stress is that uh, under extreme stress, 
the pupils will, will flatten, which actually cause your uh, peripheral vision to diminish. So the camera and your eyes do not see the same things. And that's absolutely imperative for reviewers and jurors and judges to understand is that you're getting two complete different um, perspectives on what took place. So cameras, as, as fantastic as they are, we, I'm, I'm a huge proponent. Uh, I've, I've been a, a union leader for the police officers uh, in two agencies, and I'm a huge proponent of, of cameras. But it is not everything that took place. So we need to understand the ability of our equipment. But certainly, going back to your initial point of report writing, there has to be detail in this um, this narrative, including the difference in size, perhaps, between the officer and the suspect. Maybe the suspect has cauliflower ears, which uh, I take immediately. Okay, they've been a wrestler and or maybe a, uh, an MMA fighter or jujitsu person, whatever the case may be. And they have experience. That, that's going to cause me to react differently to maybe somebody who doesn't have those objective signs uh, upon initial contact. So there's, th this is a great conversation that literally, Adam, could go on for hours, but you bring up one of the most important points in use of force, and that is the documentation after the fact and getting all of the evidence, including the videos that are available, to put the whole package together. Absolutely. We could talk for hours. Um, I mean, you brought up a few things there that cute. Like I did some um, I did some training uh, with the Ekman group from Paul Ekman all on micro expressions. And I did that mostly because, I mean, my background is psychology and I find it extremely interesting. But like you said, if, if somebody's interested in finding out how good you are at picking out um, very subtle differences in uh, in facial expressions and what those could lead or cue to, uh, you should check out uh, the Ekman group. And um, this isn't a plug for them. Uh, they have no idea that they're going to be on here. But it's it's super interesting. You can get some free, you can do some free tests and stuff on there. It, really fascinating stuff to kind of maybe drive home the point a little bit more about what Jason was talking about here. And I mean, like you said, there's there's a huge difference between circumstantial and direct evidence. There's a reason why witness testimony has so much more power in court proceedings than just a CCTV video. Um, and it's just for the same fact that you just mentioned there is that we perceive things at such a higher level than any camera will ever be able to record that it's not a reliable judge of what actually happened in that incident. So it's up to the officer to be able to describe and explain to articulate what happened, why it happened. And like you said, you know, whether it's, the officer's ability or the subject's ability or perceived ability, like you said, do they look like they're a fighter? Do they look like they're a gang member? Do they look like this? And does that does and how does it affect your judgment and your reaction in that scenario? So um, I think that's a super interesting conversation. We're probably gonna have to do a whole other episode on that alone or like a 10 part mini series. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Uh... I'll finish the camera conversation off with cameras are only two dimensional. We see things in three dimension uh, and cameras don't have emotion. So I think often that's missed uh, on the officer side is we, we experience emotion, um, whether that's fear, 
um, whether it's, you know, uh, anger, it, it's, it's um, our thought process is, is broken up because we're, we're not understanding uh, everything that's going on. You know, maybe our brain goes into a little bit of, of um, overstimulation. And so that's why, uh, you know, painting this picture in your narratives becomes so highly important. It's really interesting. I'm just at my, I got the hamsters spinning. Um, I've said, I've used that analogy a few times uh, on the podcast, but when it comes to why people explain things the way they do, and it brings me back to an example. And this is, this is kind of out of the realm of law enforcement, but I, I bounced, uh, I ran the door of a bar for, for many years when I first started security, I was, I was in martial arts and I was a bigger guy and uh, I wasn't, that big i guess i was kind of an average size guy but i was heavily involved in martial arts training and in competition and so i was able to handle myself and when we're sitting there and training these new doormen on how to do things and everyone's like hey yeah we got it we got it and one night this fight broke out and these this group of guys walked in and one of the doormen um when we asked that something happened we asked them to get them out of the bar this new guy went up and he ended up actually just like dropping this guy like one shot out cold completely unconscious and afterwards we're kind of like he's trying to explain to the police what happened when they showed up and he in his mind he was trying to find a legal justification as to why he did what he did right so the suspect you know how usually it happens um, and it drives everybody nuts, but you're like talking about use of force. It's like, well, the suspect became assaultive. So I used a hard, empty hand technique to immobilize or whatever, right? Something to that effect. Sure. And afterwards I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm talking with him. I'm like, why did you do that? And he's like, I was fucking scared, man. I thought this guy was going to kill me. And I was like, that's what you need to be telling people. Yeah. Like that's important. Like the fact that you felt afraid is extremely important to what your actions were in that incident. And I think that's important for people to know is that it's okay to say I was afraid, which is why I used my baton, why I pulled my taser, why I pulled my firearm. I did it for this reason. It was because I was afraid that this was going to happen. That's a relevant fact in that altercation. So what do you think? And it's a realistic response. And, and, you know, I think what we experience, whether it's a situation, like you said, where um, it's security, um, a bouncer or law enforcement, the problem you have is you have all these type A's personalities and people are, are afraid to admit that they were scared. Well, fear is a healthy response. Fear can save your life. And having the uh, putting yourself uh, in, in a realistic situation, if you're not experiencing fear um, in a confrontation, I would say that there might be something wrong with you. Um, it, it's, that, it's human nature. And because of that, um, it is good to say it. It is acceptable to be scared. Uh, and, and what we want is use that fear to help uh, protect yourself or, or to protect somebody else and use it appropriately. And then once we've gained control, then we can breathe and we can relax and move on with whatever needs to take uh, place next, whether it's, um, you know, having the suspect and yourself checked out, 
um, getting them to jail and moving forward. It's it's an evolution um, of the process. We just need to do it uh, legally. And we can't be afraid as professionals to say that we experienced fear. That's just, it's, it's um, I don't know why that happens, but I will tell you, frankly, I've been fearful in situations for sure. Uh, and then we can digress into, you know, tactical breathing and all of those things. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it's, it's a realistic human reaction. One thing I want to touch on real quick, because I have, a, I have another point about the evolution of, of policing that I want to ask you about, but I want to kind of bring this to a close because it, it reminds me of an example uh, that was given to me. This isn't mine, so I'm uh, I'm stealing it. So um, you know who you, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you know who you are. So thank you. Essentially, what this this instructor had told me was when you're explaining, you're explaining use of force in an incident to somebody, and you're trying to explain what what is reasonable. In so up here in Canada, um, the wording in the criminal code is reasonable grounds. So what? what was reasonable and and that's what people get stuck on is what is reasonable right and this is how this instructor explained it to me he said imagine that in whatever city town county state you're in you have 50 people from all walks of life so you take a complete cross section of the place that you're in so ages uh races sexes religion everything completely just random group of 50 people you sit them all in a room and you explain what happened in that situation if they go yep that makes sense then it was reasonable if they say that doesn't make sense then you probably have an issue but that goes back to explaining and articulating you know i i did this because i was afraid for my life well 65 year old roman catholic grandma that's sitting there understands what that means is that because she's been afraid for her life at some point in time so she can then relate that to the officer there were they have to understand that the officers aren't robots it's not action reaction it's there's a whole bunch of things that go into everything that they do every single day every single minute every second that are human reactions to things not just policies and procedures laid out in your handbook. So that was what he kind of relayed to me. And I always think that's a super important um, way to explain what reasonable force is when you're talking um, to officers and training. So I don't know. What do you think about that? I couldn't state it any better that that makes complete sense. And that's exactly how I would view it uh, without question. And, and I think uh, I would use that repeatedly. I'm probably going to steal that from, from you and whoever provided you with that now, because (laughs) That's one of, yeah. one of the better explanations um, of common, using common sense that, I, that I've heard as it relates to the officer use of force. So uh, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, the, the, well, the gentleman who, who I took that from, his name is Mike. Uh, he's out of Ontario. Um, so, Mike, thank you for that. <laughs> we'll make sure you get all the, uh, all the credit and uh, any funds that come in for, because of that, you'll, uh, you'll get that. So. And thanks, Mike, because I'm going to use it now, too. There you go. And you're still getting all of zero dollars from it. So, <laughs> um, so Jason, one thing I wanted to talk about, because we were talking about evolution of policing, and this is something that was interesting because I had posted something on LinkedIn 
I wanted to get people's thoughts on specialized units and should there be a requirement or a prerequisite for new officers joining units? And there was a lot of varying conversation. Um, and I know you have some thoughts on it, but I wanted to talk about certain specialized roles and how society and culture has changed so that the officers that we're getting into agencies now are not the same as the officers that we were getting 20 years ago. Like you had referenced at the beginning of our talk, you had said it was different when we were growing up, you know, you'd be out playing with, you know, if you're out doing something after school, you're out in the yard doing kickball or, or playing a game of pickup or something with your buddies, you get into a scrap, you get into a fight. It, you know, there'll be the two of you, everybody circles around, you throw down, you get up, you shake hands, you're good. But you've had that experience and that exposure to conflict and, and physical fighting. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, schools nowadays, you go to a, an elementary school and God help the student who wants to pick a fight on the playground. They're going to get like suspended or expelled and their parents have to go to counseling and they have to call in special counselors to 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 you know help the kids because of the trauma that there may have been a fight it's it's a completely different society that we live in now and the officers that we're getting now are different than the ones that we had in the past so what are your thoughts on how that's changing and should we be changing the way that we look at roles in policing yes and as i uh before we came on we were talking about this a little bit and i had read um several of the responses that you had posted on LinkedIn. Just to qualify, uh, I have had a very privileged career. I've had the opportunity uh, to work several specialties, including um, gangs, homicide, street-level narcotics, uh, major narcotics, um, the U.S. Marshals uh, Violent Fugitive Team. I've worked with the uh, FBI Safe Streets Task Force, I've worked fraud. So I, I have a, a lot of experience over, over different disciplines within the investigative uh, realm. Uh, here are my thoughts uh, on, on newer people getting those specialties. If I were the head of an agency and I saw an officer who had experience or training uh, or was just able to really uh, do a particular specialty very well. Let's take uh, computer crime. And you had mentioned this when we were offline. Uh, I'm not a computer guy, never have been. Uh, but nowadays, with the technology that's been around, these younger officers come in, and not only have they grown up with technology, but now in elementary school, middle school, high school, and even into college, some of these these uh, younger people, they're writing their own programs. Uh, they can go through social media with just unbelievable um, quickness and knowledge about how to find things and how to set things up. It would make no sense, in my opinion, that me as a, a, a more than 20-year veteran put in for this job because I want to either move uh, to a new discipline or get off the street, or I don't like the supervisor I'm looking for, so I'm going to go do this. It makes no sense to me that I would get this job based on years of experience versus somebody with two years on who can literally come in and 
damn near start working right away. It's going to take me months, if not years, to become proficient uh, or even be remotely close to the experience that this younger officer has. So in my opinion, I'm going to utilize that resource and because of their experience, put them into that specialty position. Um, I think if you're looking at comparing uh, professional culture, so we, again, I go back to it. Law enforcement, we want it to be a profession. We want to be professionals. Well, in private enterprise, regardless of your age or your experience, they're going to put the person with the uh, most experience to produce the best outcome into a position. Why then aren't we in the law enforcement community going not going to do the same thing? That that be, comes back to we're just not looking at things in in my estimation with a common sense approach to the the mission of uh, the job, and that is to solve crime, help people out, and get cases resolved. And in doing so, if I have people. Uh, regardless of the discipline, who have exposure and who understand the elements and components of this specialty, then put them in there. And I'll give you an example. Um, a, a good friend of, of mine and my family who I grew up with in California when I was a cop out there, um, he had grown up in a very, very rough gang neighborhood. I mean, one of, one of the, the roughest uh, neighborhoods in Sacramento, California. And uh, I, I know I call him J Dub. That that's his his nickname that uh, my family and I use. And the guy's a superstar. And growing up in these neighborhoods, he knew all the gang members. He he went to school with them. He was in the neighborhood with them. J Dub though had never ever been involved at any level. Um, but his ability to talk to them, to understand how they work to understand the organizational structure, to understand, and I think most importantly, the lingo, the street talk, what it means. That made him a phenomenal detective when it came to gang narcotics and gang activity. He worked with me in, in, in gangs and, and in narcotics. Um, he was an absolute superstar did not have a ton of experience when he went into these specialties, but was regarded by everybody in the department as just a, a tremendous source of information because he had it. He knew it intimately. So why would you put Jason Civitano in that position? Uh, and, and we had worked in the jail for a bit together, too, at the sheriff's department we worked at. And we're on the same shift. And there were times where I'm interviewing gang members on their intake classification. And as I'm asking questions, I'm getting some, some street slang back. And I would, I keep asking, what does that mean? What is that? And I'm asking the person I'm talking to. So J-Dub would come over and essentially, for lack of a better term, he would translate for me. He just knew it. So that's a resource that I think you put into that position and you utilize his uh, wealth of knowledge and experience, because you're going to get uh, a quicker return on your investment for putting him into that position versus me. Same with the technological um, aspects of it. Let's say there was somebody who came up through an agency um, 
in uh, on a forensic team, whether and, and let's say it's non-sworn and then they become a sworn officer and homicide or robbery or somebody is looking for a detective and you have this person with a wealth of experience investigating crime scenes and collecting evidence and and seeing how this evidence all plays out together. Once again, why would that person not be given a position um, based on their, their skill set, their knowledge base, as opposed to how many years they have on the job? It's such an interesting conversation. And one of the, obviously those came up uh, in the conversation on LinkedIn and also um, a lot of it centered around um, more more people brought up things like tactical teams, um, which I know you're very familiar with. And, you know, it's talking about like, OK, well, what if you have, you know, a guy who just spent 10 years on the teams as a breacher with untold amounts of combat experience and real world experience? And he comes in and now there's a spot open on the ERT or SWAT team. And they go, oh, well, he's he's only been here six months, so he's going to have to wait four years to apply. And a lot of it was that doesn't make any sense, you know, and but some to some people, it does. Some people think that that should stand, that there should be some type of generalized service that is conducted as a prerequisite. And some people are saying maybe there are circumstances where you don't need that. Maybe that this person is so exceptional in what they do that we should be bypassing what is standard and actually put them into a role that they can excel at immediately. I I would agree. And, and so let's talk about the tactical teams real briefly here. Here are some things that we looked for. And this, um, I actually had written it down earlier uh, of something I wanted to circle back to. And that is when we look at what a person... Um, their the the training experience, their life experience, and their their abilities that they bring um, in their application to a particular um, specialty. So you're looking at, let's say, a tactical team. You're looking for a fitness level. You're looking at an aptitude to do um, two things almost at the same time: follow directions and team operation, as well as be able to think quickly on your own at a moment's notice, um, giving, giving, um, you know, good feedback on maybe why something different would work better in this situation from, from a view you have or perspective, um, your, and this is what I want to circle back to your ability to communicate. And again, it goes back to the kids playing in the street versus being on a computer. Um, this is another, uh, trait that I think needs to be taught and worked on. Um, and, and I haven't really come to a great, uh, answer for this, but how do we teach people to be more effective communicators? Um, and crisis communication could mean the use of force and giving directions, uh, but thinking your way through it. Um, so you look at the total package of the individual that's applying and then if that's these are the qualities that you're looking for, I think your question is answered. But I will I will spin off on this just a, a tad here. I do agree that you need to at least understand the basic principles of law enforcement. You need to have some exposure to some calls for service, to 
um, the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment relating to searches here in the U.S., um, the ability to um, understand the use of force policies or whatever policy is in place for the specialty you're looking at. I think those do play a very important role. Um, but again, that would be part of that overall picture. And with as much as the law changes with different uh, appellate court and Supreme Court rulings, regardless of your experience, this is a continual learning process in law enforcement. And if you've quit learning, um, then you are no longer effective in the game, in my estimation. So I, I, the other thing to look at is, let's say somebody came from another agency and has eight or 10 years. And they, so they come to this new agency and there's an opening on the, the tactical team, but the policy says, well, you have to have three years on. So you have somebody with all this experience and maybe they have some tactical, tactical experience prior to even coming over. Why would you hold that person back just because they've only been on the department 18 months? To me, that just doesn't make sense. And again, I, as a leader, I would want to utilize um, the people that provide uh, the, the most experience and resources in a given area so that I get the most for my investment of moving uh, one of my personnel to that spot. One last question before we talk a little bit about what you're doing on the personal side of thing with your training and stuff like that. Do you think that there'll be a time where law enforcement agencies will move to um, <clears throat> some type of organizational chart similar to that, what we see in the military where somebody comes in and you come in for a specific specialty and you may remain in that your entire career. So for example, cyber crimes, are we going to get to a point where there's a role for an officer where they are not going to ever have to go on patrol because their job from start to finish of their career is going to be in one specific unit or area? Do you think that is going to be the future of policing or do you think there will always be a requirement to have general duties for every sworn officer? Wow, that is a good question. So I think there's a couple of things that come into play here. Uh, especially for for the example you gave with with the cyber crimes and because cyber crimes encompass so many things, you know, from um, sexual exploitation to um, identity theft and um, infiltrating systems and, and stealing, you know, tens of thousands, if not mil millions of dollars. Um, these crimes are some of the most prevalent in our society now, and quite frankly, they're easy because uh, trying to chase somebody who is doing this and maybe stealing Wi-Fi from somebody else or they're going to the local coffee shop or the library and using their computers and or Wi-Fi. So you don't you're not able to track them as as quickly and easily. Uh, maybe somebody with with experience um, uh, in, in, you know, they come out of uh, uh, computer software engineering and private enterprise I could see that potentially as, as evolving um, into a specialty where where that could happen. Um, here's the one the one thing I think that could stymie those those types of uh, moves being made or a transition as as you had described it. Uh, I told you earlier that I've I've been involved in union leadership uh, for about 15 years of my career. 
Um, and I have a little bit different perspective than, than some union leaders do. However, um, the union leadership protects their membership, right? Their current membership. That's their obligation from collective bargaining to grievances, to representation in internal affairs, uh, and the list goes on and on. So it's, it's a battle that you fight between administrators and some of the, the, the unions on how are we going to take care of the people who work here now? And are we going to give somebody a primo job um, from outside or that has just been here a year? Because um, we have all of these other officers who have been with our agency for years and years. Shouldn't we reward them for being in the department, for staying with the department and for working hard and doing well? So I, I guess my, my, my straight answer is I don't know. Because you would have to have all of these different components come together um, and problem solve uh, the questions that come up and be able to be in agreement that in certain circumstances, this may be the best decision for the organization uh, in distribution of our resources and our assets. And I circle, I always circle back to professionalism. If we're going to be more professional, we're going to solve more crime. We're going to help people more. We're going to um, help our victims uh, in, in, of crime, then that this may be something that we need to explore uh, in the future of the law enforcement profession. Right on. Well, thank you, man. I know it's a tough question to answer, but I think you did a great job there. I appreciate it. Before we let you go, I'm going to give you a second here. I want you to tell everybody about uh, about what you're doing uh, on the private side with Complete Tactical Consultants, because obviously everybody who's listening to this right now uh, is interested. They can tell that you are a wealth of knowledge and experience, and they're going to want to reach out to you. So where can they do that? And uh, what is Complete Tactical Consultants about? So Complete Tactical Consultants uh, started out about four years ago with uh, a group of officers and uh, a former professional MMA fighter, Ryan Jensen. And Ryan's fought both uh, in the UFC as well as uh, other uh, venues, uh, 29 professional fights he fought for uh, since he was a kid and is a tremendous wealth of knowledge in the martial arts, uh, mixed martial arts arena. And he came to us and said, hey, what I... And, and he's friends with, with cops all over uh, the Midwest. And Ryan said, I think we need to put some tactics together that make a little more sense with uh, the evolution of the UFC and the, the uh, fight game that are more basic, but will increase officer survival. And he said, but doing that, I think we throw other components in. And those components are nutrition. And I don't mean going on a diet. What I mean is just eating healthier um, for at least 80 to 90% of your week. Um, instead of drinking monsters and caffeine, how about we, we drink a, a gallon or so of water a day or a little more? Um, how about we, we try and keep some of our meals consistent throughout the day? Then we got into uh, mental health. And we use Dr. Jack Stark for that. 
And that is not only identifying people in a mental health uh, crisis and what those different types are, but it's officer mental health. And if you look now throughout this country, we have a huge problem with the officer suicide rate. And it just doesn't focus on that. It focuses on being able to sleep. Um, Dr. Stark has provided six audio clips uh, that do this, being able to understand tactical breathing and how to do it correctly. Performance enhancement techniques, and we're not talking about, um, you know, taking uh, supplements. What we're talking is uh, how we train, how we train right, um, how, how the style of training, block training versus different types of flow training. So we worked very hard uh, over the last several years, and we put this company as well as this program together. Uh, everybody can look at it online, uh, www.completetacticalconsultantsspelledout.com. Uh, we have a full website, and there's two ways that uh, people could utilize it. You can utilize it just as uh, a student, an operator from anywhere in the world. What we've done is every subject that we've put in there has online videos, online training, online testing um, that the officer needs to complete as they progress through the program, through all of those um, subjects that, that I had just discussed. And then every single use of force or tactics video is broken down individually and also has this, it has its own video that explains the technique slowly um, and takes you through the technique so that you can uh, get with a training partner, pull it up on your computer or your cell phone, and actually just get a workout in. So we talked about ways of getting extra experience. This is one you could um, you know, get one of your buddies from work and go through the program, and it's very inexpensive. It's uh, uh, $200 for a two-year uh, subscription online, and you can go into it and use it as much as you want. Um, the the nutrition, for example, we give here's here's some things to buy at the grocery store, uh, so that you keep some consistency in meals. And we all know, especially uh, the officers on swing shift and graveyard, a lot of times there aren't um, places uh, that with healthy food available to eat. So we have a nutritionist on staff. And Jessica Wagner, she broke all this down and, and contributed for that portion. She also took some of the major fast food rings and listed what you order at those, at those places to get uh, fewer calories uh, with less fat content and some better nutrition um, if you have to eat on the fly. So uh, we have the operator portion, and then we also have an instructor um, class that we put on. It's 40 hours long and we can uh, either come to your local jurisdiction or you can come here to Omaha when we hold them. And uh, it's a, a five-day, 40-hour uh, class. Uh, we can also do a four-day, 40-hour class depending on what the specific uh, jurisdiction wants. The only requirement we have there is the minimum is 20 students. So we're really proud of it. Uh, we keep evolving with new information and talking with our um, uh, the people who are um, contributors here. The other thing we have is Dr. Conroy, who's an orthopedic surgeon uh, here in Nebraska, and he's also a jujitsu practitioner. Um, he has signed off on the program 
from a, a medical standpoint, we have the mental health component, um, and then we also get into uh, use of force law, the reasonableness standard, uh, and those things. So it's, it's a complete system that is just not based on, here's how we do a takedown, a double eight takedown, or here's not just how you throw a punch. Uh, we looked at all areas of force and stress and human factors, and that's how we developed our program. Jason, I love it. I love that you're continuing to advance and change the game. So keep doing what you're doing, my man. And I'm excited uh, if you're willing to have you back on the show uh, coming up uh, in 2020. And uh, we'll do this again, my man. I would love to. And once again, thank you very much, Adam. I think what you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. The people that you have on your show are exceptional uh, in their fields. And uh, I enjoy listening and uh, very grateful to be a part of it so thank you very much i appreciate that my man i will talk to you soon take care all right all right that wraps up our conversation with jason if you want to learn more about complete tactical consultants or talk to jason and find out what he's doing visit the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash zero two three And make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want to get more actionable information just like this, if you're finding it useful and relevant to you. A reminder, real quick, that January 30th, we have the very first Instructors Roundtable that's going to be live at 1800 Central, right on the website at thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. Make sure to tune in for our next episode rolling out next week. I look forward to seeing you there. Stay safe.